Take your Bibles, please, and turn to Isaiah chapter 40. That's where we are today. We're in a series called Hope from Isaiah, and today we're looking at hope for strength. Hope for strength from Isaiah. Here's a key concept today from Isaiah chapter 40. God delivered hope will give birth to strength. God delivered hope will give birth to strength. Hope and strength go together. Without hope, you're not going to have the strength to endure the difficult situations that we all face in life. There are times when we come upon situations in life that we know are beyond us, are just unable, we're just unable to wrap our arms around this and bring a solution. We need strength beyond ourselves. It comes with hope, particularly for God's people, hope in God. Viktor Frankl was an Austrian-born psychiatrist. He died at the age of 92 in 1997. But he also experienced the horror of the Holocaust. He was imprisoned in some of the uh, concentration camps, one of them, of course, Auschwitz. And he, as a psychologist at the time, uh, kind of observed what he saw happening in the camps. And he said that many people who survived the camps survived not because they were so strong physically, but they survived simply because of their capacity to hope. In his book, Man's Search for Meaning, he writes it this way. He said, the prisoner who had lost faith in the future, his future was doomed. With this loss of belief in the future, he also lost his spiritual hold. He let himself decline and became subject to mental and physical decay. And he goes on to say that he observed a phenomenon regularly, unfortunately, in the camps, particularly Auschwitz, when suddenly one morning someone would simply refuse to get up, refuse to move from their bunk. They had given up hope overnight. They didn't have the strength to go on. Hope breeds strength. What he calls faith in the future, I call hope. Hope and strength go together. And that's what we're going to see from Isaiah chapter 40 today. Because as we move into Isaiah chapter 40, we're coming into a section of this prophetic book where Isaiah is no longer speaking directly and primarily to his contemporaries. But rather than that, Isaiah is looking past his contemporaries and he's speaking to those Israelites who are enduring the Babylonian captivity, the exiles. And he realizes that the exiles, these, this future group that he has in mind because of God's inspiration, they will be teetering on despair, living under the power of their enemies. It would be easy for them in Babylon Jerusalem has been ruined by now. The, the exiles have been dragged out of their homes. It would be easy for them to conclude that God has lost interest in us. We are abandoned by God. We are helpless against our enemies. Nothing will ever be right again. And that is why in verse 27 of chapter 40, he addresses them this way. Why do you say, O Jacob, and complain, O Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord? My cause is disregarded by my God. See, he anticipates this moment when hope will be fading and complaining will go up. 
One author writes about complaining. He says, as we complain, the very air around us is charged with the electricity of unbelief. Everybody breathes in that unbelief, and few people have spiritual health enough, health enough to resist. When we complain, we make it easier to doubt God than to trust God. And that's what Isaiah sees happening in the future to the exiles who have been taken from their land. Hope is fading. Doubt and despair is rising. Complaining is happening. And Isaiah in chapter 40 pushes back against that downward tendency. Let's read on in verse 28. Do you not know? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He will not grow tired or weary, and his understanding no one can fathom. He gives strength to the weary and increases the power of the weak. Even youths grow tired and weary, and young men stumble and fall. But those who hope in the Lord will renew their strength. They will soar on wings like eagles. They will run and not grow weary. They will walk and not be faint. As we move into Isaiah chapter 40, as I mentioned a moment ago, we come into a new section of the book, a section of the book where he has, is no longer talking words of warning to his contemporaries, you better get right or tragedy is going to come. He realizes they are not going to get right with God, that tragedy will come. His warnings will go unheeded. He's speaking now to the people who have reaped the consequences of his generation, Isaiah's generation, not paying attention to God. Now, I want you to see he's always known that his words would be for nothing. When God called Isaiah in chapter 6, you read about his calling, he says, but the people will be ever hearing but not understanding. It's not going to work, although I want you to speak that witness so righteousness will be represented and the will of God, the standards of God will be presented. But he knows he's going to fail and now he's projecting his thoughts uh, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit approximately 200 years into the future. Isaiah was called into the prophetic ministry in 740 B.C. 740 years before Christ, in the year that Uzziah died. In 538 B.C., the, the exiles will be released, and part, part of that group will come back to Jerusalem. That's what Isaiah is beginning to talk about here in chapter 40. And he expects those exiles along the way, after the fall of Jerusalem, as they're in Babylon, to be asking the same questions that we ask when things go wrong for us. The exact same questions. Doesn't God care? Is God too weak to fix this situation? Is he unable to help me? Or is he hateful and unwilling to help me? Chapter 40 takes aim at both of those questions. And he assures the Israelites in captivity, God does love you. He is almighty, and he will at his time demonstrate his love and his might for you. So he begins chapter 40 with words of God's goodness. Let's go back to verse 1, chapter 40, verse 1. Isaiah says, God speaking through Isaiah says, Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. 
Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and proclaim to her that her hard service has been completed, that her sin has been paid for, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. A voice of one calling in the desert. Prepare the way for the Lord. Make straight in the wilderness a highway for our God. Isaiah says, what God wants for you is comfort. What he wants for you is to be reassured that he sees your need and he's responding and he's going to set you free. Even though you have failed him, even though you are sinners, he speaks to you of comfort and pardon. He gives reassurance that they will return once again to Jerusalem. The time will come when they will have served their sentence and God will end their bondage and bring them back. But did you hear the New Testament words there from the pen of Isaiah? New Testament words that you're familiar with if you've read the Gospel of John. Because in the Gospel of John, we have the story about John the Baptist who comes. And there we hear the very words of John the Baptist. There's a scene in the beginning of the Gospel of John when the officials from Jerusalem come out to where he is at the Jordan River. And they're quizzing him as to, you know, who are you? What gives you the right to do that? Let's pick up the reading in chapter 1, verse 22. It says, finally, they say, who are you? Give us an answer to take back to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? And John replied with the words of Isaiah the prophet, I am a voice of one calling in the desert. Make straight the way of the Lord. You see, Isaiah's words initially had to do with God rescuing and pardoning his punished people. But John the Baptist picks up those words and he sees himself as, in a sense, the final fulfillment of those words spoken way back in Isaiah. He says, I also proclaim to you the need to clear the way for God. God is coming, the anointed one, the Messiah will arrive. You need to clear the way so that he has access. Back in Isaiah's day, there weren't a lot of roads. And the roads that did exist were more like footpaths. And so if a king's caravan was going to travel, the arrangements had to be almost you know, fantastic in in scope. First, they had to send people out who would level the roads, who would clear the roads, make the way so that the king's caravan would travel unhindered. They wouldn't get stuck and be unable to move. And before the king would go, the laborers would make the way. Now John is pulling that imagery forward and he's saying, "What, what I want you to do is make a way into your heart because the King of Kings is coming. Get ready for the coming of the Messiah. Make it easy for him to reach you because he's coming. And the way you make it easy for him to reach you is through repentance. John's baptism was a baptism of repentance. It was a baptism of readiness. It was a statement to say, I know that I have failed and I know that I have sinned, but I want to put that behind me and I want to be ready to receive the Messiah when he comes. And you put these two fulfillments of those same words side by side and you see just how much God has a best blessing in mind for his people. And and by extension for us, we who know him today. The exiles will get back to their homeland. They will be comforted. 
And Isaiah speaks words of that comfort, but unknown to him, there was always more to those words. A greater blessing would come. God the Son would come, and he would bring a greater comfort and a greater rescue, a rescue for all eternity. And this was all foreseen as Isaiah predicts what's going to happen 200 years from when he stands and gives these words. In fact, he was able to predict the release of the captives and the return to Jerusalem so um, specifically that he actually was, was able to name the king who would make it so. In chapter 44, God is speaking once again through Isaiah. And he says, I am the Lord who has made all things, who alone stretched the heavens, who carries out the words of his servants, who says of Cyrus, he is my shepherd and I will accomplish all that I please. He will say of Jerusalem, let it be rebuilt, and of the temple, let its foundations be laid. Here, God speaks through Isaiah and he names King Cyrus as the one who will let the Jews return to Jerusalem. Now, for the contemporaries who were listening to that prophecy, most of them were scratching their heads. Who's Cyrus? He's not even on a radar screen. In fact, this prediction is so amazing because you have to understand that Cyrus was not even a Babylonian king. Isaiah has pre been predicting an exile in Babylon, but he names a king who will return the, the children of Israel to their homeland who's not Babylonian. He's Persian. He's able to see that in the future, from where he stands, Persia will defeat the kingdom of Babylon. They will take over their property. They will inherit everything that they own, including the exiles, slaves of the Jews. And he sees that King Cyrus will be the one to let the first wave of exiles go home. And 200 years later, Zerubbabel leaves the, leads those exiles back to go rebuild the temple. And they go free. God has intervened just like he said he would. And John the Baptist, hundreds of years later in the New Testament, is saying, God is doing it again. So make a way. Clear the road so that he'll come to your hearts. And who is this God who will do this? Well, Isaiah describes him. Look at verse 28. Do you not know? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He will not grow tired or weary, and his understanding no one can fathom. In that little verse, there are four things about who God is that should inspire us to follow him. Number one, God is eternal. He always was, and he always will be. God never had a beginning, and he'll never have an end. That's a mind-expanding thought. It's, it's beyond us. And the reason it's beyond us is because we live in a little bubble, and that bubble is called now. We can't live except for now. Yesterday is gone. The future is yet here. Not here yet. But now is here. We live in now. We're, on, we're always in now. And we quickly lose the lessons we learned yesterday, and we don't even know what we're going to learn tomorrow. And so in the now, we often make mistakes. We often choose badly. We often do things that are wrong. We often feel the way we shouldn't feel because we don't see the big picture. 
But God sees all time, all the time, above and beyond now. Theologians talk about God living in the eternal now. Always, it's always all before Him. And He has our best blessing in mind so that we should never panic if it looks like things aren't going right or unraveling before us. Don't worry. God has it all before Him. We can trust God's eternal nature. Secondly, He's creator. The implication is that all that exists is His and He cares about His possession. Thirdly, He is untiring. He is always active. I don't know about you, but I tire out. I need rest. You know, I was told, I read recently, we spend one-third of our lives asleep. If you're a healthy person, one-third of your life asleep. And then there's times in our life when our physical body begins to wind down, but none of that applies to God. He's never asleep. He's always paying attention. Listen to Psalm 121, verse 3. He will not let your foot slip. He who watches over you will not slumber. Indeed, he who watches over Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. When you hit your, uh, your head hits your pillow tonight, go to sleep because God's going to stay up all night. And he's going to watch over you. He's always active, he's always working, and he's always for you. You will never be a hobby that God has lost interest in and so you're in the back of his garage. He cares for you. And he is, fourthly, all-knowing all understanding. You can't possibly know all that He knows. You can't possibly know how He knows all that He knows. You can't possibly know all about Him. For everything we know about God, there's a thousand things that are mysteries to us. There is nothing that God doesn't know. That's why we cannot expect that we should live our lives as if God should explain everything to us. We live our lives by faith and by promise God does not report to us. We report to God and submit to what He has in mind. And you're saying, well, why should I do that? Because of verse 29. He gives strength to the weary and increases the power of the weak. He's willing to share His strength with those who are His when we need it because His desire is to give us what we need in difficult times. To understand, Isaiah is addressing people who are tired, people who are weary, people who are faltering. He's talking to those people who have been so depleted in life. They have literally nothing pulled out of their homes and living in a foreign country. Their tiredness is almost existential. It's not the kind of tiredness that you're going to fix with an afternoon nap. It's a spiritual tiredness right through and through. It's like that man on the bunk in Auschwitz who decides one, one morning life is not worth getting up for anymore. That's the kind of tiredness they feel. And the message of Isaiah to them and to us is, do not give up. You have a big God. Do not give up. That big God is on your side. Do not give up. That big God who is on your side is willing to share the strength He has with you. Connect your life to hope that comes from God, and you will be unusually resilient in the struggles of life. The promise is not that the struggles won't come. That's a false promise. The promise is not that you can sidestep the effects of living in a fallen world. That is a false hope. But real hope is found in God, and He will lend you strength to get you through. Even youths grow tired and weary, verse 30, and young men stumble and fall, but those who hope in the Lord will renew their strength. The point is, even at our prime, even at our peak, 
human strength will always fail. We are no match for what we face in life. We are limited. But God is saying you can live beyond your limited potential when you hope in me because I will share strength with you. Beyond your potential. That word potential haunts us when we're kids. I remember distinctly many times my parents coming home from teacher-parent conferences. I dreaded those nights. They would say, stay up. We'll talk it over with you when we get home. Teacher-parent conferences. And I'd come home, they'd sit me down on the kitchen table, and they'd say, Mark, your teacher says you're not working up to your potential. I used to think, how does she know? This may be it. This is, I'm peaking right now for all she knows, right? I came to realize later that's teacher speak. They're just being polite. What they really mean is your kid's goofing off. You got to straighten that kid out. He's goofing off, but not living up to his potential. That's teacher speak. Well, let me say, even if you lived up to your full potential and you worked to your full potential, it would not be enough. That's the message. Even youths grow tired and, and fall. God is enough, more than enough. And in His strength you will excel. And here's what it looks like. But those who hope in the Lord will renew their strength. They will soar on wings like eagles. They will run and not grow weary. They will walk and not be faint. The great and good God will share His strength with His people. See, when you know Him, you hope in Him. When you hope in Him, you draw strength from Him that He freely gives you. And when you draw strength from Him, you're able to do that which for you right now seems like an impossibility. I can't do all that. The three things listed. I can't do that. I certainly can't fly. Can't soar. I can't run for too long. And if you were to see me run, you'd probably think, that's not running. I don't know what that is, but that's not running. And I can walk, but eventually I get tired. But hope gives me strength. Hope. Verse 31, it may be that some of your Bibles that you're reading right now doesn't have the word hope there. Maybe some of your Bibles has the word wait. Those who wait on the Lord. The actual Hebrew word there is wait. But the sense of the word is you're waiting in confident expectation. You're eagerly waiting. And so we put that together, and I think a good way to translate it would be wait in hope. Wait in hope and gives you the faith that will bring you strength in God. It will embolden you to live for Him. Wait in hope because of what you know about your God, because you know He is everlasting. He is the creator of the ends of the earth. He never grows tired. His understanding you can't, you can't fathom, and He will give strength to you. Life is hard. We all need hope. That's why God points us to Himself. And the, and the prophet is saying to the exiles and to us, God will be there for you. Banish the idea in, off of your mind that nothing ever changes. Push away the thought that things will never get better. Things do change. God is writing our story, and the story is not over. Don't expect the conclusion of the story in the middle. But there will be a finale, and in the finale, God has the last word. And the last word looks like soaring and running and walking. The question is, have I shifted my hope away from the things of the world 
the systems of the world, the people of the world? Am I banking everything on the things that are, are going to be here only for a short time and are ultimately unable? Or is my hope planted in God? Because when my hope is planted in the Almighty, He says, you will walk, run, soar. That's the order I would have written it in. Did you notice that's not the order He, he gave it? Huh. If I was writing this as an inspirational talk, and it's not too far-fetched, I write inspirational talks. If I was writing this, I would have said, and when you hope in the Lord, you will walk, but you will run, but you will soar. But that's not how God wrote it. Why not? He's telling us here that, you know, there will be times when you seem to be floating and flying above it all. There will be times when you hit your stride and it feels like in life you're just running with the wind. But most of life is walking. Most of life is ground level, one foot at a time, day after day. But you can live that life empowered by God because this adventure that we're on as Christians is called walking by faith. Take the journey and you will find that God refresh, refreshes you along the way. Why? Because he wants your comfort. He wants to pardon. He wants to bless. Now, maybe you're here or watching on TV, and you're saying, but I'm not sure I'm on the journey. I don't know that I've started. See, everybody just doesn't ooze into this. It's a decision. And maybe God seems distant to you now, but he's not distant. He loves you and he wants to be part of your life. It is sin that separates us from him and that denies us the hope. Hope for not, not only here and now, but for all eternity. But it's a decision you, say, you make to say, I'm going to get in the journey. I'm going to start the walk of faith. And it starts as you say yes to Jesus. The Apostle Paul put it this way. The wages or the result of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. You start the journey when you say, yes, I want that gift, that new life gift. I'm repenting of my sin and turning to Christ. And when you accept that gift by faith, the journey begins. And it's a journey in and toward hope. And that's maybe just what you need. And if you're here and you're saying, well, I, I'm not sure I started that, or at home saying that, I'm going to help you start. Would you bow your heads and close your eyes? Because maybe somebody is saying, you know, I am tired of doing this on my own. I need God. And you begin the journey by expressing faith in Jesus Christ. I'm going to help you pray that prayer of faith. Silently, you don't have to say it out loud. But if you need that, you say something like this. Lord Jesus, I need you. I want hope. I believe, Jesus, that you died on the cross and paid the penalty. And you rose again. And today, you can change my life. Lord, I repent of my sin. And I start over with you. Help me to be your child. Lord, I don't know if anybody prayed that prayer here in this room. I don't know if anybody prayed that prayer watching in the screen at home. 
but I know that you want them to. I know that it is your desire that all of us are on this journey of hope. And so I pray, Lord Jesus, that there are some who have. And for all of us to be reminded what it means to be a person of promise and a child of the King. Help us cling to you, for there we will find strength. For we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, if you're here in this room or maybe you're watching on your screen at home and you prayed that prayer along with me, I'd like to send you this material. If you text the word FAITH to 209-257-8768, it's on your screen right now, 209-257-8768, I'm going to send you this booklet entitled, Now What? Living Out Your Christian Faith, the good beginning uh, piece of literature for what it means to live as a Christian. Uh, you'll get a text back from me asking about your contact information, and I'll send it to you once I have that, and that's for you, so that we all can live in hope. The team is back to lead us in a closing song, so why don't we all stand together as we sing? Oh! Uh -huh. 
pray together before we go. Heavenly Father, we thank you for that amazing grace, for the love that you show us. Thank you, Lord, that you will make a way even though it seems there is no way. We trust you for that. Give us hope. Give us promise. Help us to live out that promise. In the week ahead, Lord, we pray that people will look to us and see hope alive, and that hope translates to our love for you. May we be good witnesses. May we show your grace in action. Bless us as we go, for we ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you. Thanks for coming. <laughs>